The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Moving the Treatment of Advanced Gastroesophageal Cancers Forward. How can we maximize the benefits of novel immunotherapy approaches? Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash NTS 860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Hello, and welcome to our program. My name is Dr. Yelena Janjigian. I'm a medical oncologist and chief of GI oncology service at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York City. I'm joined today by my colleague at Memorial, Dr. Steve Marin, who is also a medical oncologist focused on GI cancers. And today it's a pleasure for us to discuss with you updates and how the treatments for advanced gastroesophageal cancers have moved forward to help you maximize the use of these agents in standard practice, particularly for novel immunotherapy approaches. We'll start with module one, which is realizing the potential of novel immunotherapy options for patients with advanced gastroesophageal cancers. By way of background, immunotherapy has transformed the field of upper GI malignancies, and we will start with adenocarcinomas. Nivolumab is approved in combination with chemotherapy in the United States, Canada, and many countries worldwide in first-line treatment irrespective of pdl one status. Pembrolizumab is also approved in combination with trastuzumab and chemotherapy in first-line setting, specifically for HER2-positive disease. We also still have the approval of nivolumab in Asia in later lines of therapies beyond second- and third-line therapy. However, that approval has been withdrawn, and we no longer have anti-PD-1 therapy in the United States. Pembrolizumab approval in third line or beyond was withdrawn as of July of 2021. We still have pembrolizumab, however, for TMB high and MSI high patients. So we'll start with the practice-changing Checkmate 649 study. This was a large phase three study, randomizing patients, over 2,000 patients, irrespective of pdl one status, both esophageal, G-junction, and gastric adenocarcinoma patients were included across four arms. Chemotherapy arm was compared to chemotherapy plus immunotherapy. And then the third arm of Checkmate 649 included nivolumab, ipilimumab. The primary endpoint for the study was the overall and progression-free survival in patients selected by pdl one CPS5, or greater. And this was the pre-specified primary endpoint. Hierarchical tested secondary endpoints included all intention to treat population and pdl one cps one population for OS and PFS. Another hierarchically tested secondary endpoint was for NEVO-IPI in, in uh, secondary uh, analysis. And this arm was actually closed early due to uh, increased toxicity and deaths relative to the other two arms. So when we look at Checkmate 649 data, what led to the FDA approval is are these survival curves right here. This data has been published uh, in Lancet, and uh, since then, the analysis has been updated in Nature. So looking at the left, we look at the primary endpoint, which is CPS5 or greater. The hazard ratio is 0.71. For the first time in uh, pretty much ever, we see the median overall survival for HER2 negative population across uh, the one-year mark, so median OS of 14.4 months for biomarker-selected population. And in all randomized, all-comer patients, CPS, uh, uh, you know, 
regardless of CPS, OS is 13.8 months. So the hazard ratio is less um, uh, robust than for biomarker selected population, but the survival curves are similar uh, in shape, and there is a nice plateau on the curve, uh, suggesting that there is a benefit irrespective of PDL1 in some population as well. It's important to note that the population of CPS5 greater, uh, greater patient is the predominant population here. It's 60% of the population. Um, and that's why it's, the survival curves look like that. Uh, well, this is the long-term follow-up. The two-year follow-up uh, has shown that uh, close to 30% of patients are alive at two years. Again, suggesting long-term benefit. Uh, and some of this benefit is seen as irrespective of pdl one status. Directionally, the hazard ratio is actually improved uh, and became smaller. So the hazard ratio of 0.7 uh, with long-term follow-up and 0.79 for all comers here. Median OS 13.8. So it's nice to see this long-term survival data, and it's certainly uh, very important for our patients. Well, what about response and response duration, especially looking by difference in PDL1? Um, for CPS5, uh, less than CPS5 population, we all agree that perhaps this population of patients benefit less in terms of survival benefit. Uh, the overall response rate benefit is still there, although less uh, pronounced. It's, it's, uh, it's about 10%. For CPS 5 or greater, the overall response rate improvement is a 15%. The median duration of response is improved irrespective uh, of which population. So uh, highlighting the importance of use in first-line setting. Uh, the depth of response, as seen on these waterfall plots, uh, is improved. In all randomized patients, 24% uh, of patients had greater than 80% reduction in targeted measurable lesions with addition of nivolumab compared to 17%, uh, and it's 27% for PD-1 CPS5 uh, uh, versus 19% uh, uh, for CPS less than 5. So the depth of response uh, can uh, potentially be augmented. Here it's 19% for CPS less than 5 for nevo chemo. 13% for CPS less than five of, you know, had a, depth, a deep response for chemotherapy alone. What about MSI status? Well, uh, you know, later on in the program, Dr. Marin will talk more about subsets that benefit the most from immunotherapy, and MSI population is the one of those. So hazard ratio of 0.38, whether or not you receive immunotherapy in first-line setting, Overall response rate is improved, and this is critical, particularly if you're considering restricting use of immunotherapy based on PDL1 status, because MSI and PDL1 overexpression sometimes go to hand in hand, but not always. We do see some MSI patients with PDL1 CPS less than five. Uh, what about nevo ipi uh, population? As I mentioned, that study, uh, that arm was closed early. The secondary endpoint was not met. The hazard ratio is 0.89, but it crosses uh, the one uh, mark. Median overall survivals are very similar. And because we see this initial detriment and crossover in favor of chemotherapy for the first 12 months, even though there is a plateau on the nevo ipi arm, it, the plateau is just not significant enough to uh, justify use in first-line setting. Uh, response and duration of response, however, with nevo-ipi, if you do respond to nevo-ipi, your duration of response has doubled. Overall response rate is actually quite similar, 27% um, in later-line uh, therapy, which is what we saw in Checkmate 32, versus first-line therapy, which is what we saw in Checkmate 649, suggesting there's a subset of patients that will benefit from nevo-ipi, 
perhaps beyond MSI and EBV patients. However, that's not use, usable in standard practice because of the risk of adverse events and potential detriment uh, outside of uh, a study. For MSI patients, however, it's small numbers, only 11 patients treated with nevo ipi Overall response rate is 70%, hazard ratio is 0.28. Uh, again, the duration of response is uh, doubled. So uh, for, you know, for this population of patients, again, highlighting the importance of immune checkpoint inhibitor, know who your MSI patients are, test them early, test them even in early stage setting because it has implications in perioperative management as well. And it's critical to know in stage four disease because of use of immune checkpoint blockade. Here for Checkmate 649 data, again, this is an important subset of analysis, but highlighting the importance of realizing what are the primary endpoint, which is CPS5, what is the subset analysis, which is not pre-planned and retrospective. So uh, the, the cutoffs using CPS less than one, greater than one, suggests that absolutely higher PD-L1 patients benefit the greatest with the caveat that there is, it's a dose-response relationship and how certain are we about calling a tumor CPS 3, 4, 5, and so forth after a certain point. It's very um, uh, operational dependent, quality of the sample, tumor content, the amount of time that the sample has been sitting there in a pathology lab, uh, all of these are uh, drivers of heterogeneity and the difference in testing. So. Um, the FDA actually, and many different countries, approved the use of immunotherapy irrespective of pdl one status. Uh, the EMA uh, and NCCN, for example, uh, list this as the use of pdl one CPS5 as the preferred cutoff, and the NCCN specifically lists uh, all-comer use as a Category 2B recommendation. So a lot of it is it's nice to, as a clinician to have the power to decide whether or not to offer these medications to your patients um, and... Uh, you know, a lot of detail goes into uh, subsequent biomarker testing, and PDL1 uh, is an important uh, part of this. Um, the reason why we weigh risk benefits is because when you add immunotherapy to chemotherapy, there's increased rate of adverse events. It's approximately 15% increase in grade 3, 4 events. And the reason why is because you have chemotherapy side effects and you add them immune check uh, blockade side effect. Um, and so, you know, you, you, you get a, a bit of both. Most side effects include uh, elevation in grade 3, 4 uh, events such as liver function tests or neutropenia um, and neuropathy, diarrhea, and so forth. Um, we included this slide just to give you a sense of the complexity of the field. We, in the interest of time, uh, we covered some of the uh, main studies, but attraction 4 uh, is an important study as well that looked at this population, Asia population, and demonstrated progression-free survival, uh, but not uh, overall survival benefit. So uh, uh, something for you to be aware of. And coming out of Asia, we have many more anti-PD-1 therapies uh, that are available. In the interest of time, again, we weren't able to summarize them, but what the Asian uh, data does help us with is this question of what is the rate of CPS5 or greater, which should be the rate in uh, standard practice. Often you hear from the clinicians that 60% of CPS5 or greater feels like a too high of a number. That's not what I'm seeing in my clinic. And what we see in phase three studies is across 
two or three uh, more studies now, and this is, I just summarized at ORAN16 and Checkmate649, using two different antibodies, because Checkmate649 is used DACO288, ORAN16 used 22C3, 60% positivity is what you should expect in practice using CPS5 or greater cutoff. Um, and if you're seeing anything less, question the methodology of how the test is being done, question on uh, the quality of the sample, the tumor content, uh, perhaps the, uh, all the other factors that are associated with it. And that's why often in the real world, I feel uncomfortable restricting use of immune checkpoint blockade because we, I think we are underestimating the percent of patients that could be eligible for those uh, therapies. Um, last but not least, if for the adeno cohorts is the Keynote 811. Uh, this was a large phase three study that finished accrual. The survival data is still maturing, but patients were randomized in first line setting irrespective of pdl one based on HER2 positivity, so IHC3 plus or IHC2 plus fish positive, to receive pembrolizumab plus trastuzumab and chemotherapy, which is oxaliplatin-based therapy versus placebo plus trastuzumab and KPOX. And the interim analysis was based on overall response rate. We were expecting a very high overall response rate based on the MSK phase two data that led to the phase three study. Here we see the overall response rate, uh, which has not been previously demonstrated in any phase three study of 74% with a delta of close to 23% compared to the standard of care. The depth of the response was nearly double. Decrease of greater than 80% was seen in 32% of patients with thrombolizumab, trastuzumab, versus 15% in the standard of care arm. The FDA was very impressed with this data, and it led to the approval of, the, of May of 2021. So it's available in your clinic. The grade 3, 4, and 5 adverse events did not differ between treatment arms, so this is a very safe regimen. Uh, and it can be used in standard practice in the United States. It's already available. So this was a whirlwind uh, a summary of adenocarcinoma data, and now it's a pleasure to invite my colleague, uh, Dr. Steve Marin, to summarize the squamous data uh, and the updates. Please, uh, Dr. Marin, go ahead. Okay. So Dr. Janjigian already spoke about adenocarcinomas in terms of where immunotherapy fits into our paradigm. But the next piece is looking at esophageal squamous cell carcinomas. And so really this data is based upon the first line Keno 590 trial. And this was patients who had esophageal cancer that was either adenocarcinoma or squamous cell carcinoma, but primarily esophageal squamous. They had a performance status of zero to one, they needed to be treatment naive. And then they were stratified by whether they were uh, in Asia versus non-Asia by their histology and also by performance status. And patients received chemotherapy, either with umbrilizumab or placebo. And in Keno 590, there are a few key points from the data. First, there was absolutely an overall survival benefit, but this was really much more profound than specific subsets of these patients. Primarily, the patients who had esophageal squamous cell carcinomas. And within that group, this is most profound in the patients with a CPS score of 10 or greater, and we'll talk about CPS scores in just a moment. There's also an objective response benefit for this subset of patients. And as I alluded to, when you look in these subsets of the squamous cell carcinomas, as well as those with the CPS period of in 10, you can see the improved 12 month and 24 month survival rates. 
on both the left, looking at PO and CPS, on the right, across the swim cell carcinoma patients. And then when you look uh, at the multivariate analysis, you can see that patients who, uh, patients benefited really regardless of histology, but this is primarily seen in those with squamous cell carcinoma, and you're seeing the greatest benefit in those with a CPS score of 10 or greater. But more recently, there's data from Checkmate 648. And so this is a first-line combination specifically in squamous cell carcinoma of the esophagus. And in this trial, patients received either chemotherapy with nivolumab, chemotherapy without nivolumab, or nivolumab and ipilimumab in a chemo-free regimen. And again, there was stratification by pdl one but one key point here is this is by TPS score, not CPS, by region again, performance status, and then the number of organs that were involved. And in the results for checkmate 649, on the right, we're looking at patients across the entire trial, where you're seeing a more modest benefit. And then when patients are stratified by TPS score, using a cutoff of one or greater, we see a much more profound overall survival benefit here. But even more recent data presented in, in 2021 with nivolumab and ipilimumab. And what you're seeing on the right, again, is across the entire cohort, a rather modest but statistically significant survival benefit. And on the left, in that population that had a TPS score of one or greater, we are seeing a more profound overall survival benefit. And when you look at the durations of response across these three arms, again, you're seeing actually uh, similar durations for nivolumab plus chemotherapy versus chemotherapy alone when you're looking across the entire attention to treat population. Surprisingly, a little longer in the nivolumab plus the bolumab, but this is in a smaller subset of patients that had already responded. And then you see these numbers do increase somewhat for the PDL1 1% or greater for the nivolumab plus chemotherapy and the nivolumab plus ibolumab, but not as much, or frankly, not at all for the chemotherapy only arm. In terms of safety signals across these three arms, there's a very high rate of any toxicities and rather similar rates of toxicities amongst the two chemotherapy containing arms. Uh, but what is most notable here is the nivolumab plus ibolumab grade three core toxicities that we're seeing in about a 23% uh, of patients, even without the chemotherapy present. And so whenever we're using combined therapy with CTLA-4 inhibition, we have to be mindful of the additional toxicity from the CTLA-4 inhibitor additions to the PD-1 inhibition. But from there, we're going to switch gears a little bit and discuss the molecular features of this particular cancer to get a better understanding of why we see responses in some groups more than others and how we can identify which patients these will be. And so when the Cancer Genome Atlas sought to stratify these patients into histological subtypes, the first group was the esophageal squamous cell carcinomas on their own. These were characterized by CCND1 amplifications, TP63 and SOX2 amplifications, and KDM6A deletions. Then you have the chromosomally unstable cancers. This represents the bulk of the esophagastric cancers that we see in the United States, typically localized at or around each junction. And these are the patients where you'll find most of the early two amplifications, those were two positive cancers, also frequent VEGF amplifications, and nearly all these patients have TB52 mutations. And then we get into the smaller subsets that are typically found in the stomach. First, you have the two that are very responsive to immunotherapy, that is EBV positive tumors, 
that are typically characterized by PIK3CA mutations and very high PDL1 expression typically. And you have the microsatellite unstable cancers. And the way you recognize these is really seeing a very high tumor mutation burden. They too are typically PDL1 quite positive. And this could either be due to underlying Lynch syndrome or MLH1 promoter hypermethylation, which is typically more common in older patients. But the last subtype that we haven't really talked about today are those with genomically stable tumors, also called diffuse type or signet ring cancers frequently. And these are the patients who typically have loss of CDH1, whether inherited or acquired. They have frequent Rho A mutations, and they also do have frequent claudinate T fusions. And so by thinking of it in this way, we could better stratify which type of therapy would be better for which patient. And to look at the overall landscape across esophagastric cancer, its pie chart tells us a lot more about where we're at now and where we're going in the future. And we know about 15 to 20% of patients can benefit from BER2 direct therapy. We now have approvals for chemotherapy plus trastuzumab plus pembrolizumab at the first line, as well as trastuzumab derupts the can in later lines. For the 3 to 5% of patients who have microsatellite unstable tumors, we know that they respond incredibly well to immunotherapy PD-1 inhibitors to ban the order about 60%. For PD-1 positive patients, I'll talk a little bit more about this in terms of the uh, level of PD-1, PD-L1. And then we have more investigational biomarkers. We have Claudin-18-1-2, which is found in about 30 to 35% of patients for the fast travel zobituximab. And more recently, the data from the FIGHT trial would get FGFR2 amplification and or FGFR2 expression by IHC, which can be found in about 30% of patients. And so this is really a rapidly evolving landscape where we're able to target Claudin 18.2, FGFR2B, and clinical trials, other clinical trials looking at targeting other oncogenic amplifications, namely MET and EGFR. Stephen, so in increasingly um, crowded space of biomarker testing in your clinic, how do you prioritize these? That's a great question. As standard of care in all of our patients that we see with esophagastric cancer, I always want to know the microsatellite instability testing, their BERT2, and their pd one When tissue is available, absolutely in the stage four setting, and sometimes earlier as well, when patients have a very high risk of recurrence, like in stage three, I do do the tissue testing with mskimpact.r institution, which will look at about 500 different genes looking for mutations and amplifications that are potentially actionable in the future. And what about germline testing and circulating tumor DNA? How do you think about those? That's a great question. As part of this, we actually do matched normal blood collection as well to look for germline alterations. And in conjunction with family history, we really do find quite a few patients who have germline alterations. So I find it very worthwhile to look for this, both for the patients and their family members. Now, I, I mentioned PDL1 expression by IHC a few times now. And whereas some of the slides refer to the tumor positive score, we now use a cell positive score or CPS, which is counting the number of PDL1 staining cells, both tumor cells and immune cells present, divided by just the tumor cells that are present and multiplying them by 100. And so it can actually be a number greater than 100 sometimes. And you could see on the left, a negative sample. On the right, a very positive sample where you're seeing a lot of brown showing the member that's staining. But it's a difficult biomarker to use. 
nearly every company and most cancers has used a different antibody with a variable cutoff and you'll see differences between patients within the same patient and across time. And what we find is that the negative predictive value of this biomarker is quite useful, but the positive predictive value remains quite low. And so further biomarkers are needed. And uh, one study that was published that I actually found quite interesting was looking at uh, in patients who are tested across time. So pre-treatment and post-treatment or primary versus metastasis. And they found that there's a significant discordance even within the same patient between pdl one tests, and this was all at the same institution. It just highlights how much variability there is depending on the biopsy, depending on the side, depending on the time, and how we have to be mindful of when it's proper to use immunotherapy or not in these patients in the setting of a pan approval now. And so with that, we're going to transition to the next piece, but Dr. Jajian, going, going back to what we were showing before with Checkmate 648, we now have this evolving landscape, right? Where we have this option of chemotherapy versus chemotherapy with PD-1 inhibition that most profoundly in select patients versus now a chemotherapy-free backbone. When do you think about using nivolumab or ipilimumab? It's a great question. And it does come up, especially from patients' perspective, chemotherapy-free backbone is the, often is an attractive option. The good news is Checkmate 648 used uh, IPI-1, so lower dose of IPI, and overall the tolerability uh, was fine. The grade 3-4 events uh, was acceptable, although the serious grade 3-4 events in that study was uh, higher uh, with NEVO-IPI compared to chemo-NEVO. Uh, the big question is, how does NEVO-IPI directly compare to chemo plus immunotherapy, either on Keynote 590 or Checkmate 648? Um, and it's hard to know because those numbers were never directly compared. What we are, what we do know, similar from adenocarcinoma and to squamous cell cancer, there is an initial uh, crossover in favor of chemotherapy uh, in all the studies that do not use chemotherapy in combination with immunotherapy. So that's my concern with ch uh, with Checkmate 648 population. We know that people that go on phase three studies typically are a fitter and a more robust population. In my clinic, when a patient comes in with squamous cell cancer, they're usually frail and have large disease burden, they need a quick response. Um, and so that's the concern with nevo-ipi is that is the response quick enough? I think the duration of response when the patient is respond, uh, re once the patient is response is great. Uh, realistically, most of my patients in the clinic, squamous cell patients need chemotherapy plus immunotherapy. Um, and the population of patients that's, that I would consider using immunotherapy without chemo are the small volume disease patients relatively asymptomatic from their cancer. Would you agree? I completely agree. And it is always difficult to make that choice and look forward to having more options in the space really for our patients. Why don't we talk about some cases to really work through this data a bit more? Great, what do we have? Looks like we have these here in module two. Okay. So we have a male oil refinery worker, six to two, with mild dysphagia for five months and a five kilo weight loss, whose PCP under uh, order an EGD, revealing a GE junction mass that was consistent with a poorly differentiated gastric adenocarcinoma with signet ring cells. 
with two liver lesions present and a large gastropatognomal mass and thickened GE junction. This goes back to our question before, which biomarkers tests would you order to guide treatment? Yeah, so this is a very typical presentation, right? And the number one predictor of the outcome is the amount of weight loss the patient experienced, what their functional status is, um, how well they can tolerate therapy, and nutritionally how you can best support them. So that's your first decision tree point, right? Is this patient fit for treatment? How aggressive can I be? Um, the second question that often comes up is, do I need to biopsy these liver lesions to confirm metastatic disease? Uh, typically, we don't require biopsies, even for clinical trial uh, enrollment of the metastatic lesion, as long as there's at least two different radiographic modalities that confirm that this is consistent as M1 disease. So for our patients, it's typically a high-resolution CT scan and a PET scan or an MRI that's you're really certain that this is adenocarcinoma from the endoscopy and radiographically uh, metastatic disease. What we do know from the biopsies is that typically there's plenty of tissue to do biomarker testing, especially in first-line setting. So don't be shy, test away. Uh, I completely agree with you. Uh, we do prioritize HER2 and MSI. Uh, MMR, IHC is very important to do uh, for these patients. HER2, IHC, uh, and PDL1 as well. In addition to that, in our practice, we standardly do uh, Epstein-Barr virus testing uh, as it may have implications in, in de-escalation chemo, uh, de of chemotherapy. Um, uh, and uh, certainly, as we discussed before, uh, both germline and tumor mutation uh, testing. Steve, would you check uh, CTDNA in this patient at baseline? In my practice, I typically do. Um, I, I often do check CTDA in conjunction with tissue testing, and we've looked at this before because we find an incredible amount of heterogeneity between the primary tumor and the metastatic sites, and oftentimes that it allows you to both identify more actionable targets while also characterizing the amount of heterogeneity, which is actually prognostic in terms of how much benefit they'll get from, let's say, a PER2 directed therapy. How about in your practice, Elena? That's a good question. And typically, if there is a targetable alteration, such as HER2 or MSI, then I do follow CTDNA. If this is a straightforward um, case with no targetable alterations, I don't check because um, it's similar, I guess, to tumor markers. They're useful, but may not be um, that useful in, in the fluctuations. Uh, do cause a lot of anxiety and also the timing of the switch of therapy and so forth. So um, unless there is a clonal sort of evolution or any interesting uh, lessons to be learned or if a patient is in a clinical trial, I don't routinely check CTDNA in all stage four patients. You actually brought up a great point. There are two times where I'm, I, I really try not to check CTDNA, one of which is if somebody comes to me and they've already started therapy, I worry about the false negatives of testing CTNA during therapy. And two, if they're not on a targeted therapy and they've already had testing that did not reveal any actionable alterations, the odds of developing a new actionable alteration are quite low. Yeah. Yeah. Monitoring it just to know the tumor burden and the changes in the max VAF, I think really um, perhaps it would be helpful in the future when we 
if we have better effective strategies where we can potentially switch treatment before even clear radiographic progression. Unfortunately, now for now, I know what second-line taxolimumab can do, um, and it's not, you know, uh, warrants doesn't warrant early switch. I think unless there's clear radiographic progression. So what happened to this patient? Let's see. Let's see. His cancer came back HER2 negative, PL and CPS seven, microsatellite stable, tumor mutation burden five, KRAS amplified, and with a TP53 mutation. So what treatment option will you consider? So are you surprised about this profile or is this pretty typical? I'm really not surprised at all. Um, so when I saw signet ring cells, so it, it could be suggestive of focal signet rings. Um, it could be signet ring cell carcinoma. It's a biopsy, so I can't really definitively answer that. If that is the case, that it was a secondary carcinoma, I would expect it to be a two negative. I would actually expect a CPS zero in a case like that, and probably even a lower TMB than it was. Probably not the KRS amplification. So it seems more like a typical focal signet ring type cancer, um, where the location is with TP53 mutation, KRS amplification, seems like a chromosomally unstable G junction at no carcinoma to be. So I would call that sort of our bread and butter. Agreed. Yeah, and KRAS amplifications are not targetable, as you mentioned. It's, when I get these cases, I'm always curious as to which antibody was uh, checked, uh, used for CPS testing, particularly if it's a pdl one negative case. Um, you know, there are many different clear-approved antibodies, and you have to read the fine print and understand how it was determined, uh, you know, if it's and uh, what the CPS score. But this is... Bread butter, unfortunately, mainstream G-junction cancers. Most of them are HER2 negative um, and P53 mutant, so. And what are your thoughts in terms of CPS 1+, plus, 5+, plus, and 10+, plus for Checkmate versus Keno? Yeah, it's, um, it's tricky because, again, for I think it's important to continue to test and it's important to risk stratify. So, for example, if this patient was older or frailer or had maybe uh, adverse events, associated at particular risk for adverse events associated with immune checkpoint blockade and their tumor was less than five, um, you could talk about the risk-benefit ratio of using immunotherapy in that setting. Um, certainly, we know there is um, a gradient of benefit, and it's a continuum, and I think it's important to understand where to draw the line and when to treat the patient or not and how certain you are about the result that you're reporting to the patient with a CPS uh, scoring. I don't find comf I don't feel comfortable saying um, that we can with precision, laser precision tell if the tumor is CPS one, two, three, or four, <laughs> or five. Uh, I think it's um, overstating the reliability of this test, um, but reporting it in sort of general terms of the risk benefit ratio, we know that if CPS is greater than 10, the benefit is obviously much more robust. Um, for five to 10, it's intermediate, less than five, uh, it's, it's, it's less. I think that's a great way of putting it, just like everything else in medicine, having that risk-benefit discussion with the patient, right? Yes. Let's see what's next. So how are we going to treat this gentleman? Chemotherapy of platinum and fluoroprimidine. Chemotherapy of platinum and fluoroprimidine and taxane, it's a flat scenario, or chemotherapy of platinum, fluoroprimidine, and nivolumab. 
Yeah, so even before Checkmate 649 approval, I rarely used a triplet, uh, triplet therapy in this population. You know, the population of patients that I did use FLOT-type regimens or modified DCF were the young, fit patients. By young, I mean less than 50 um, who are presenting with large disease burden where I was worried that if I didn't get the disease under control, we would never use second-line therapy in those patients. It is not the 68-year-old with weight loss and who can't eat, who has only two liver mats. Um, those patients get hurt, uh, potentially, with triplet therapy. And now you don't have to do it because we have immunotherapy approved. So um, for those patients, fluoropyrimidine with, uh, with uh, oxaliplatin combination. Cisplatin should not be used in standard practice at high doses. It's very toxic and... Now, Keynote 811 and Checkmate 649 used oxaliplatin. So that's the new registration regimen. Um, so 5-FU uh, platinum and nivolumab is what I would use. Um, this case it made it easy for us. It's CPS7, so this is in agreement even with um, EMA and uh, the NCCN guidelines. Uh, would I use uh, nivolumab in a patient with less than 5 pdl one overexpression? Um, we do discuss these in the clinic, and we have several trials for these patients, so I think that should be your answer. Um, and then you can decide on case-by-case -case basis. I typically do offer them immunotherapy if that's sort of, if they understand the risk-benefit ratio. And that really is an advantage of being where we are in that even with the wonderful benefits we're seeing with adding immunotherapy per these trials, we really do need to do better still. And so I, I agree with you that clinical trial is always the best option available. But why don't we change the scenario just a little bit here? So now let's say this is a patient is a retired teacher with stage four GE junction adenocarcinoma, it's metastatic to the lungs, two children, three grandchildren, microsatellite stable tumor that is for two positive now, CPS positive, or heck, we could even say CPS negative here with a good performance status. What would you give them? Yeah, well, he hit the jackpot. HER2 positive is a is a really the silver lining of having this disease. Um, so for these patients in particular, it's very important now to consider doing uh, NGS because I do find knowing the co-occurring alterations of, with HER2 very helpful. And actually, for those patients, uh, I think circulating tumor DNA may be an easier way to get a understanding of the spectrum of the tumors. We know HER2-positive tumors are not all created equal. If you have high level of amplification in circulating tumor DNA or in even um, in tumor by NGS, those tumors tend to, patients tend to do much better on first-line HER2-directed therapy. And addition of pembrolizumab, irrespective of pdl one status, dramatically improves overall response rate. The overall survival is not yet mature, but in the phase two, setting, it was overall survival surpassing two years, the median overall survival. Um, so in the United States, many have started to use this combination even after the phase two data published in Lancet Oncology, and now it's now approved in phase three, um, based on phase three setting. So it is really um, important. But it's funny that you highlighted the CPS uh, testing. Tell me, what do we know about PDL1 and CPS and as a mechanism of resistance to trastuzumab and how we should think about it when it comes to HER2? You know, this is one of the most incredible translational pieces of this paradigm in that there's actually no benefit shown 
uh, for patients who are CPS one or greater versus CPS zero when it comes to her to direct therapy in conjunction with PD-1 inhibition. Uh, we don't really know the mechanism at this point, but it's possible that there's a synergy between the pembrolizumab and trastuzumab such that PDL one testing really doesn't matter in this population. I would use this combination therapy regardless of their PDL one. And I, I think that's an important point. Absolutely. One other logistical issue I've run into my practice is that the original way that this is tested is with K-box pembrolizumab and trastuzumab using pembrolizumab and trastuzumab every three weeks. However, many of my patients are coming in quite obstructed, unable to take Cape cytopine. How are you handling this in your practice in terms of how to dose these patients for the beginning? That's a great question. Um, and so there's two ways you can think about it. You could consider doing pembrolizumab off, um, doing Folfox and then pembrolizumab, uh, um, you know, every six weeks, uh, Folfox trastuzumab every two and uh, pembrolizumab every six. Um, you know, you could consider uh, doing uh, pembrolizumab every three weeks on uh, one week off, you know, from the uh, every two-week schedule. Practically, uh, I have been able to get Folfox nivolumab pembrolizumab for those patients as well, so there's options. Um, the good news is they often, imp the swallowing all often improves after first or second cycle, so it becomes less of an issue. Uh, but I, I agree with you, capecitabine is not for everyone. On this, uh, in the Checkmate 649 study, it was a 50-50 use between Capox versus Folfox typically. It's nice to have that flexibility when sometimes we're able to get nivolumab and we have different dosing uh, schemas for pembrolizumab to make Folfox uh, feasible in this population. And I think we have one more case, and uh, this time it's in esophageal squamous cell carcinoma. So this is a woman with a history of tobacco and alcohol abuse who's 69 years old and diagnosed with enlarging left superclavicular lymph node. That pathology revealed was poorly differentiated FDG abid, lower, or sorry, lower slash mid esophageal squamous cell carcinoma. And there was additionally a large gastroesophageal node. This patient had significant dysphagia. And for the molecular test, it revealed a TP53 mutation, microsatellite stability, a PDO1 CPS score of nine. She seemed quite fit. So, what treatment option would you consider in this patient? Yeah, so this is interesting, right? She's um, a typical squamous cell patient with medical comorbidities um, and, you know, for squam in particular, more so than adeno, I don't actually do um, standard sequencing, but it's nice that they know her uh, uh, TP53 mutation. Um, she has no contraindication. In this uh, to immune checkpoint blockade, in my clinic, this patient would get um, chemotherapy plus immunotherapy, and I think irrespective of pdl one status. Irrespective, Ben, which would you use these days? Yeah, so I have, again, been using for, again, most of the data for Keynote 590 and so forth is with high-dose which obviously is very difficult for patients in her state. Um, so I typically use oxaliplatin in combination with 5-FU, um, although data coming out of China is very, makes it very tempting to use a taxane in first-line setting. This is not our practice. Typically in, in squamous, we prefer 5-FU platinum. 
Um, and then I decide whether or not I want to use pembrolizumab or nivolumab. Uh, sometimes I'm able to get nivolumab even for the patients already. Um, but it really is, I think, in most practices where if your use is restricted, then pembrolizumab, platinum, and uh, fluoropyrimidine would be the best option. Completely agree. It's, it's really more of a feasibility question with your chemotherapy backbone than uh, any data exists right now that suggests that it's efficacy between pembrolizumab and nivolumab. And then it goes, it goes back to the question that we talked about before, though. Would you, in this fit 69-year-old, consider this chemotherapy-free backbone if they were asking for it? I would have to see the scans. Maybe. Maybe. Um, I, would, I could be convinced to do a nevo-ipi, but I would be very nervous to do that, again, because of this concern for rapid progression. And then you may not have an opportunity to use um, treatment uh, in later lines of therapy. Um, I think one point we want to drive home is that all of these immune checkpoint inhibitors, anti-PD-1 therapies, are very similar in terms of efficacy. You just have to decide how you want to use them in clinical practice based on schedule and other preferences. And once I'm hearing that she has some dysphagia, it, it, it does make me think twice about using that approach. Uh, you really need that deep response because that deep response is the difference between her being able to eat food and put on weight, get back to the old performance status versus needing, if possible, stent or sometimes even a, a, um, uh, a peg placement. And the goal is really to get people back to their baseline. So I really try hard to get treatment in quickly uh, with the chemotherapy-based backbone, get them eating without needing these invasive procedures. So uh, now that we've reviewed the landscape for both esophagogastric adenocarcinoma and esophageal squamous cell carcinoma, just to summarize, for first-line therapy in the U.S., we have FDA approvals of nivolumab and chemotherapy project my 649 and then pembrolizumab with trastuzumab and chemotherapy for those with HER2 positive gastric and GEJ adenocarcinomas. In squamous cell carcinoma of the esophagus, we have approval for first-line embrolizumab in conjunction with chemotherapy with approvals for Checkmate 648 of nivolumab with chemotherapy, as well as nivolumab and ipilimumab without chemotherapy. Whereas in the second line, for patients who haven't already received PD-1-directed therapy, there's approval for nivolumab for esophageal squamous cell carcinoma for attraction 3, as well as pembrolizumab for those with a CPS 10 or greater with esophageal squamous cell carcinoma, microsatellite unstable tumors, or TMV of 10, uh, 10 mutations per megabase or greater. Thank you for joining us for today's discussion and updates of immunotherapy or where we are in the field of upper GI tumors. There's been a lot of excitement and many uh, treatment um, practice changing studies. Uh, it's important to remember that both immunotherapy with nivolumab and pembrolizumab can be used in standard practice uh, for adenocarcinomas uh, with HER2 positive and for HER2 negative disease. One uh, important reminder is to continue to test for biomarkers in this population to understand how to best use combination strategies, both in first line and then second line in subsequent uh, studies. So thank you for joining us and uh, have a great day. This activity is certified by Penn State College of Medicine for Physicians and by PVI 
Peerview Institute for Medical Education for Nurses. This activity is developed in collaboration with our educational partner, PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash NTS 860. This activity is supported through educational grants from Bristol-Myers Squibb and Merck & Company, Incorporated.